Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Titus, the book of Titus and chapter number two, the book of Titus and chapter number two, we are working through the <coughs> uh, middle now of the pastoral epistles where we're examining the epistles of Timothy and Titus, examining them and understanding that Paul is writing not to churches, but to individuals. And as he's writing to the individuals, they're acting as the office of the pastor. And some of the things that the pastor are supposed to instruct to the rest of the church to set things in order. And as we've already seen earlier in Titus chapter number two, is that the apostle Paul is told Timothy and addressed certain people within the church. Verse one, it was the aged men. Verse number two and on, it talks about the aged women and how they're supposed to behave themselves in the knowledge of the truth. And then it talks about how the aged women are supposed to teach the younger women. Now, as we go to Titus chapter number two, we can see as more classifications of folks within the church are now being hit. And we now find our way to the book of Titus in chapter number two. The book of Titus chapter number two, and if you don't mind, Notice with me in the verse number six, Titus chapter two and verse number six, the word of God says this, young men likewise exhort to be sober minded and all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior, in all things. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that is used in the book of Titus chapter 2? The book of Titus chapter 2, and notice with me in verse 7, notice the phrase, a pattern of good works. A pattern of of good works. And with the context that Paul is addressing different people within the group that he's addressed aged men and he's <coughs> addressed aged women, now he hits the rest of the group. And if you don't mind to allow me to contemporize the title that we see it's a pattern of good works, but I'd also like to subtitle it a message to millennials about character and work ethic. A message to millennials about character and work ethic. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And I thank you that your Bible is timeless, meaning that it is for people at all times. We know that this is 
for all people. That means it doesn't matter where they lived at. This is for them. That your book is for all people for all time. It has an application. It has something that they need to guard for, watch out for, apply to themselves. With the idea that we as Christians need to have a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. I'm asking Lord that this message would be clear and help us to be easily understood, especially as our society is changing, as we have a brand new generation that is now beginning to take leadership and beginning to take society and form it into its own image, that we as Bible believers would have a pattern of good works. Again, I need your Holy Spirit to make this clear, to let it be understood, to let it be applicable within our lives, that we can adorn God, live like Christians, and we love you. In your precious name, we definitely pray. Amen. Amen. We know that in our society, we have put generations and given names to them. In the 1940s, we had the greatest generation. Uh, that's what they, they were called. People who were brave and people who were willing to sacrifice. People that had a great worth ethic and helped win two world wars and helped protect our country and provided a great work ethic. After that, you had the baby, uh, baby boomers that as the wars were won, that babies were born and those babies grew up and became the next generation of working classes. After that, you had Generation X, which I'm part of that generation, the rebellious crowd. At least they were rebellious or they thought they were rebellious and then they grew up and took their place in society. And now we have entered the millennials. The millennials are usually someone classified, anyone born 1980 and above. So if you're born in 1980 or above, you are a millennial, at least according to the classifications. And now as the millennials have been to grow up, they have begun to change society in the way that they saw fit. They begin to change society and begin to reject the traditions and the teachings of the baby boomers and now of Generation X, and they begun to develop their own values, their own systems. We know that generation, <coughs> before they were called millennials, they had a couple different names try to apply to them. They started off with Generation Y, and it was mostly because they came after Generation X, but it also came with the idea, why, why, why should I listen to you? Why should I care what you say? Why, why? Then it became known as the me generation, me, 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 me. Until finally they just settled on the millennials just to kind of classify them themselves. And even the millennials themselves classify themselves that they have issues. And lots of issues. But they're the ones who are now shaping our society. And they have their good traits. And they have their bad traits. But as Titus is pastoring in the church of Crete. It is not unusual for a new generation to come up and to be reminded of certain things. We know as the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has talked to Titus. And he said, Titus, you're the pastor now. And Titus, as you're setting up and establishing churches in every city in the island of Crete, that you need to give some instruction to the aged men, that they're the example. They need to be the example in 
in doctrine and belief and behavior. That the aged women themselves, they need to know what they believe and why they believe it. And the aged women need to be able to take the younger women and begin to instruct them how to become younger women. And now we get to this here. This segment here, which is now to the younger crowd. In our time, we would say it's the millennials. I don't know what they called it in Titus's crowd. But this is to addressing the younger people in the church. The workforce. The people that are now just growing up. Those that are now coming into their own. Those now that are trying to decide, do I live like mom and dad or do I make my own rules? Do I make my own way? They start to form in their own opinions. And they start to come up on their own. This is the generation that's now being addressed in this segment here, this idea <laughs> that is given here, a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works is a divinely planned illustration. It gives a pattern for someone to follow. And that it's not just relying on the grandparents or those who are older. But it is the younger generation that are supposed to have a pattern of good works. That their generation and society see them. And as a living illustration, show how to live following after Christ. How should they live their lives because Jesus is real? How should they live their lives because they claim they're saved? How should they live their lives because they choose to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so with this idea here, the Apostle Paul breaks this down to those younger generation and he classifies it in almost two different ways. He talks about the character of this generation, then he talks about the work ethic of this generation as they are supposed to have a pattern of good works. So if you don't mind, the first thing I'd like to show you as he addresses the young men that he deals with the idea of the character. As he deals with these young men, he deals with this character of the generation. If you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 6. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Remember, we've defined this word sober several different times now. It carries the idea to take things seriously. And so, if you could just work with me as we apply it to our generation. Imagine that we have in our congregation full of millennials from different backgrounds, but they all have an idea that I want to live like a Christian. I want to make an impact on my society. I want to leave things better. And so it starts off with this. You need to take life seriously. You need to look at life and realize that you've got one life to live. And you need to use it wisely and not waste it. As we have the most media conscience generation, all we have to do is turn on YouTube and see how seriously our generation or that generation takes life. Between eating uh, Tide Pods or whatever crazy thing they do, we can see that this is a generation that doesn't take life very seriously. They have the idea that they're 20, 30 years old and they haven't grown up yet. They haven't taken life seriously. They don't realize that this is the time to start working, to start saving, to start preparing for life, to start working and to prepare to become married, to have children, to, to say that there's some decisions. You understand that between the ages of 18 to 25, 
people will make the most important decisions of their life and they're the least prepared to make those decisions. What decisions do they have to make between 18 to 25? Where am I going to live? Well, that determines quite a bit. Where are you going to live? Are you going to stay in the town you grew up on? Are you going to the big city? Are you going to the country? What are you doing? Where are you going to live? That determines quite a bit. What are you going to do? What is your job? What is the occupation? Well, that will affect the rest of your life. What are you going to do? You, that's a decision that you have to make, and that will affect everything else in your life. So where am I going to live? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to go to school? That question is probably the most important question. And yet, it is probably the least prepared. Because we know it's not about education. It is about influence. It's about influence. You don't go to a school to get education. You go to be influenced by someone. May I say in today's age to be indoctrinated with someone. To be told what you're supposed to believe. Isn't it funny that they go to school and they say, you don't need to believe like everyone else. This is what you should believe. And they teach people what they're supposed to believe. And now they act upon it. And it changed all the fabric of society as these people are going through school. And now they're coming to their own ideas. However, when you talk to an 18-year-old and say, hey, why are you going to this school? It's not for education. Because this is where the parties are at, man. This, this is where my friends are going. This is, and they come up with all kinds of ideas. And not, some of them have their head on straight. But a lot of them aren't prepared to have that answer. Where am I going to go to school? Not understanding the influence they're going to get at a school like that. We know that statistics, and these are old statistics. They're even worse now. That... <coughs> Only one out of 10 children or teenagers in America go to church. One out of 10. Out of those one out of 10, seven out of 10 will never darken the door of a church ever again. And 75% of all teenagers who go to college will, by the time they're out of college, renounce their faith altogether. Because it's not about education, it's about influence. And they'll be influenced that the Bible is not true. They'll be influenced and taught that our faith is not real, that evolution is true, and that the things about God is not there. And so now we have a generation, this is an updated statistic, that out of the millennials, one out of four don't believe in God at all. Because of the influence they have. So the decisions they need to make is, where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to live? <laughs> the idea, what am I going to do in life? Here's another question. Who am I going to marry? You look at a 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, and you say, they're not prepared to be married. Most of them aren't. There's some that are. But most of them have no clue what it means. They think that love is a feeling and you could fall in and out of love rather than the Bible idea that love is a commitment. And so instead of having the relationship they ought to have, <laughs> they immediately make a wrong decision that will affect them for the rest of their life. 
And then finally, the fifth big decision. Where am I going to live? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to get, who am I going to get married to? And where am I going to go to church, if at all? That's a decision that has to be made. And a decision will be made even if they make no decision. They've already made a decision. And that will affect them the rest of their life. Someone who chooses not to go to church will be impacted by that decision for the rest of their life. And so we're not talking about older people. We're talking about teenage people who are now getting ready to leave their house. They have to make these five decisions and they're too busy. If you watch YouTube, eating Tide Pods, playing video games. And this is not people who are prepared or take life serious enough to make these decisions with forethought and discernment. And it will affect them for the rest of their life because they're not sober. They're not serious about it. And oftentimes they don't make any decision at all. And it affects them. So we start off in just the very first verse we look at. Young men, likewise exhort to be sober-minded, to take life serious, because you've got some serious decisions that need to be made. Are you prepared to make them? Notice, if you don't mind, in verse number 7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern in good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness. Here it says doctrine. You know, young people need to know what they believe and why they believe it. Because if they don't know what they believe and why they believe it, someone else will instruct them in what they should believe and why they should believe it. You understand, there is a race for young people. And we have a society now that is starting at age Zero, pretty much, and influencing them. It is amazing to take a kindergarten book and open a kindergarten book and say, I believe in evolution. They may not say evolution, but it says millions and millions of years ago, and program them from kindergarten. But now you have books that age five, they're now programmed to teach them at age five that there are different genders. There's now 54 different genders out there. And they're teaching them that at kindergarten level, there is a race to teach our children. And if we don't teach them, someone else will. If they don't know what they believe and why they believe it, we're talking about not just the crazy people out there. We're talking about good church kids who grew up in good homes, but they've never been taught what they believe and why they believe it. They've never been discipled. They've never been worked on. They just assume, well, they've been in Sunday school all of their life. They're going to catch it. It doesn't mean anything. By the way, you cannot resurrect in one hour what the family puts to death the other six days of the week. If it's not lived at home, it's not going to be lived. And so the church is not the solve-all, but kids need to be taught what they believe and why they believe it. Show, they can show this. Notice this. Again in verse 7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness. Uncorruptness. That they would have a doctrine of, a pattern of belief and behavior that doesn't, isn't corrupted. That is true. That hasn't been eaten away like acid eating away on metal by someone destroying their faith. 
If a kid doesn't know what he believes and why he believes it by the time he steps out to college at age 18, all of his faith is going to be eaten away and destroyed. And again, I'm speaking as a blanket hole. God is able to protect individuals and work with them. But we understand we live in a generation now that has so much information that is constantly bombarding. And a society pressures that is constantly bombarding. That it is more imperative than ever to teach our young people faith and doctrine. What we believe and why we believe it. Notice, if you don't mind, as this continues to go on, verse number 7. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing uncorruptness. Notice this next word, gravity. Gravity. The word gravity carries the idea of dignity. <laughs> well, if you were to look, to look on YouTube, would you see a lot of people with dignity? Probably not. I don't know if you're familiar with watching YouTube. If you're not, you're better off, but... You'll lose brain cells watching that than anything else. You have people watching videos of people watching videos who are watching other videos now. And that's the show. They're watching other people's reactions who are watching other videos. Now, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying <laughs> they're making, they're acting a fool. What's going to happen in the next 15 to 20 years is the presidential races, the mudslinging is going to be showing their old YouTube videos. You remember when you did this? Because let me instruct you, if you play something on the internet, it does not go away. And it is researchable. It is amazing. I'm telling you everything that goes on the internet I have preached some messages that I did a search for and found my messages on a Vietnamese website and a Korean website that's preaching. Anything that you post is already duplicated. Most people did not realize that the Library of Congress until just about a year or so ago kept every single tweet. Every single tweet the Library of Congress kept and cataloged every tweet. All information that is put on social media is always going to be on social media. So we can look forward in the presidential elections of 2030-something, 32. You remember this video here? And watching some goofball eating a Tide Pod and about dying. This is who we want to lead our country? Oh, yeah? Well, let's see your YouTube account. Your YouTube account. That's what's going to happen. That we have a lot of people who do not carry themselves with dignity anymore. But this is what needs to be marked. For someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, there should be a certain way you carry yourself, a certain way that you walk, a certain way that you present yourself. Instead of someone who looks like you haven't taken a bath in five days and haven't had a haircut in a couple weeks and you haven't shaved or you shave part of your face. They do crazy things. I'm, I'm just, we have people who do not carry themselves in dignity anymore. You have people that show up at the nearest red box so lazy that they're still wrapped up in the blanket they woke up with and they just need to get to the red box. Unfortunately, I've seen it. You go to Walmart and you can see a lot of people who do not carry themselves with dignity. It's something... You remember back in the old days, 
To go to the grocery store, you put on a suit. Now, I'm not saying that you should put on a suit, but you remember the old days where people dressed up just to go to town, just to go shopping? And now you got people who are still wearing pajamas flip uh, with little furry uh, house shoes going around the store, paying bills, going to the bank. And, and again... <laughs> We, we're laughing because we know it's true. We have a generation that doesn't have dignity anymore. They don't know how to carry themselves. They're slobs. Nope. We, don't, we have a whole generation that looks like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. That don't know how to keep them. That's not good English. That do not know how to carry themselves in a manner that behaves like a Christian. And it's a lost art. And I say this, and someone who, who's in the millennial society look at me and say, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Because they don't. But there is a way to carry yourself as a Christian. Someone who carries themselves with dignity. The Bible word here is gravity. Notice the next word, sincerity. Sincerity. The word sincerity carries the idea directly of incorruption. That they are to live their life so sincere that it is transparent, that it's clear as glass, not stained and filthy with dirt. And they're supposed to live sincere, transparent lives, not filthiness. We live in a generation now that doesn't only sin publicly, they brag about it. Dude... This weekend, I was so wasted. I just walked around and fell in my yard. And I woke up the next morning and I was there, man. It was great. I'm going to do it again this weekend. No. Again, I work with the police now and I go with the, with the calls. Having teenagers going a high-speed chase with the officer. And the officer said, why'd you run? Because I was drunk, man, and I didn't want you to catch me. How old are you? 14? <laughs> we, we live in a society now that brags about their sin. And they don't have sincere lives. They don't have lives that are transparent that when they say, hey, I'm for you. You don't know if it's a double meaning or if they're laughing at you as they live. Man, I told that guy I was going to go to church. <laughs> Been there, done that. Walked with someone. Hey, I'm going to show up to church this weekend. And then I leave and listen to them. Oh, man, I told him <laughs> I'm not going to go. They're not sincere. You don't know if they're honest with you. And honest to how they carry their lives. Now, again, I'm not just trying to pick on the millennials. What I am trying to do is point out that there's a generation... And we all can apply this to our life. There is a way to carry yourself as a Christian. To show a pattern of good works. Behavior for others to follow. Notice as the next thing shows up in verse number 8. Sound speech. Now we know that the word sound, we've covered it before, is healthy. Means speech that is good for you. But notice the Bible commentary on this verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Cannot be condemned. It's so clean that no one can say evil of you by what you say. That your speech and the way that you carry yourself of the things that come out of your mouth. They may disagree with you, but the way that you carry yourself and, 
and speak, it can't be condemned. May I give an example? We now have a generation on both sides that if you don't agree with someone, you immediately start name calling. We've lost the idea of talking, of honest debate where you listen to someone and you respond to them with a logical argument. Instead, you get to the idea where I support this person and name calling falls. That you go and say, I support this person, I support this theology, this philosophy, and the people, how they respond is to yell. There's no logic. There's no listening. When's the last time you heard someone say, hey, I know you disagree with me. Can you explain why you think this way? We've lost the idea of sound speech. We now have a generation, again, both sides. It doesn't matter what idea of the spectrum you are. We've lost our ability to communicate one with another in a way that helps both parties at least come to an understanding. I now understand why they believe that. I understand where they came from. I understand what we've lost that. But that's something as a Christian, we're not afraid of truth. We're not afraid of it. They can logically explain what they believe and we should be able to listen to them and ask logical questions responding to it. Because there is an idea of common courtesy that if we listen to them, they may listen to us. But if we don't listen to them, they're definitely not going to listen to us. We've lost this art of sound speech. But instead, our words go immediately to attack. And now who's going to listen to us? Because now we've just insulted them. As soon as you start getting to the place where they're on the defensive the uh, debated talk is over with. Now it's mudsling. The idea of sound speech. Notice as it continues on with this commentary, verse number eight. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say, uh, um, say to you, say of you. You know what? We should be type of people that no matter what, we're not yelling, we're not fighting. We logically present what we believe. And if they disagree with it, we don't have to fight back. We don't have to twist their arm. We don't have to force them to believe. We give them something to think about and walk away. You don't have to win an argument. That's not our job is to win arguments. The Bible says, thou shall win every argument you get in. It doesn't say that. All we do is give people information and they make their own decision based off the information given to them. If they choose not to listen, that's to their detriment, but it does nothing to us. It doesn't hurt us. We don't go to jail if people don't listen to us. God doesn't send us to jail. He doesn't have a little place set aside and said, you know what? That person didn't listen to you and now you're going to pay the price. It doesn't work that way. We should have healthy speech and speak in such a way that they remember it later on. Remember on last Wednesday, we had the, the atheist, the scientist, professional scientist, who he was going in college and he was with a Christian. And the Christian tried to witness to him and she mocked him or he mocked her and mocked her and mocked her. 13 years later, he remembered what she said and he, she got, he got saved because of what she said. 
That's exactly what it's talking about here. That she said, I love you and God loves you. And one day you'll get into a trial that your science and your intellect cannot get you out of. And if you call upon God, he will help you. And when he got to that place where science couldn't help him and his intellect couldn't help him, he cried out to God and God helped him. That was because of sound speech. Once again, notice this. It says, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And so the very first part, we see the idea of dealing with character. Dealing with the character of a society. Dealing with the character of the younger people. If you consider yourself not old, this is for you. You are supposed to have this type of character in order to influence the people around you. But not only do we have to deal with a society's character, we also have to deal with a society's work ethic. So notice if you don't mind, as we now see the rest of this, dealing with the servants and their work ethic. Their work ethic. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 9. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. Now we come to the idea of employers or employees. That if you go to work, you know what a character of a Christian is? You obey what you're told to do. If they tell you to ring up the cash register, praise the Lord, you ring up the cash register. If they tell you to do this, praise the Lord, you go do this. If you, they ask you to do this, you do this. You're obedient to your masters. You're not the one who chooses what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to obey. I talk to employers all the time and say, what are you looking for in an employee? They said, we're tired of hiring warm bodies. We actually want to hire someone that knows how to work. I hear it all the time. I talk to business owners and I talk to them about it. What are you looking for? I talk to people who hire people. What are you looking for? We just want someone who knows how to work now. We want someone who's not going to fight me and look at me and rebel. And <coughs> Employers spend so much time trying just to get the people to obey what they tell them to do that they don't get anything else done. And that's not how it should be, especially for a Christian who is showing a pattern of good works. Notice, if you don't mind, it continues on in verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. Notice this. And to please them well in all things. What do we see here about work ethic? Not only are they obedient, but they have a desire to please their master. They have a desire to be pleasing their master. What can I do to make my boss happy? How can I do something to to help my boss get his job done? What can I do to, to make him happy? Most employees are just trying to look for the minimum amount of work. What do I have to do to get my paycheck and get out of here? But the Bible says, as a Christian, showing a pattern of good works, you're not only supposed to be obedient, do what you're supposed to, but you're supposed to find ways to please your master. To make those that you work with and work for happy. Pleased with your work. Glad that they have you on staff. Notice as it goes on in verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own master and to please them well in all things. Notice this. Not answering again. This carries the idea literally not to contradict. Not to contradict. Contradict. 
it deals with being impatient with rebuke. You're not supposed to do it this way. What do you know? Have you ever seen that conversation between an employer and an employee? What do you know? You don't, I know what to do. Contradict. It also carries the idea of making sure you get the last word. Have you ever seen someone who just has to have the last word? That it's even in a phone conversation. All right, good night, good night. Bye, bye. <laughs> You're walking away from them. All right, see you tomorrow. All right, see you tomorrow. And if they don't get the last word, they'll, they'll follow or call or do whatever they can to make sure they say the last word. Whether it's a husband and wife, there's always someone who has to get that last word in. That one last thing to let them know who's boss. It, it feels like if I get the last word, I win. But it carries the idea. If your boss says, you go do this, <laughs> let him have the last word. Yes, sir. And then go do it rather than, no, 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 that's not how it needs to be done. We all have been in a workplace long enough that we've seen employees fighting with the employers and they're in big word things and the employers just frustrated. Why am I even in a fight with this? Just do what I told you to do. It also carries the idea here of not talking under your breath. That carries with the last word too. Well, I'll show him. That still carries the idea. If the boss gives you something to do, guess what is God's good and perfect acceptable will, will for you unless it's illegal, immoral, and biblical? is to do it. And, not, and remember that doing God's will is not just simply doing it, it's delighting in it. Praise the Lord. He wants me to carry these extra crates. I'm going to do it. Praise the Lord. I get the opportunity to do this. Wouldn't that change the workplace? Someone says, yes, I'll be glad to do that for you, boss. No problem. The boss would probably have a heart attack and die not understanding what's going on. Someone actually is thanking me for do, giving them a task to do. Thank you. You know, thank you for letting me work here. That'd probably kill a boss too. We're going to send all kinds of bosses with arrhythmia. So why are you here? This is the third boss we've had here today. Their employees are acting like good people. What's going on here? Change all of society. <laughs> Notice as it continues to go on in uh, <laughs> verse number 10. Not purloining. The word purloining carries the idea of not stealing. <laughs> How many staples have you stolen? How many pins? How many big things? People are thieves. It's coffee cups to big TVs. Man, they'll rob the place blind if they had to. I heard of a, uh, uh, the AOL Time Warner merger. You guys remember that back in the 90s, early 2000s. And uh, they had to fire a whole department. And what they did in order for their stuff not to get stolen is the employees that had to be there, they had to be all searched before they walked out because they were afraid they were going to walk out. And then this whole staff that they fired, they brought them off location into a, play, a warehouse, said, you're fired. And by the way, we're bringing your personal items to you so you don't have to go back to the office. Because they were afraid they're going to rob them blind. <laughs> Thievery is a huge deal. You go ask Walmart. You want to know why Walmart price is so high? I mean, they're lower than everyone else because of thieves. They have to recompensate all the stuff that's stolen. And we'd like to say it's just people going and shoplifting, but their own employees do that too. And it should not be done. I mean, if you stole a pen, praise the Lord, you can confess that and get that right. 
I mean, we understand there's accidents and not thinking, but you, there should be no act of stealing, no, no taking things that shouldn't be yours. That's not the pattern of good works. It got quiet in here. But this is the idea of work ethic, of doing your best, pleasing your employee, employer. What a novel thought. Employees with the job of making their employer happy. I'm not stealing from the place. In fact, notice the Bible goes on, not purloning, but showing all good fidelity. The word good fidelity carries the idea of faithfulness. Here it carries the idea of looking out for the best interest of the company rather than your best interest. Wanting your company to do its best, to be number one, to succeed. Doing your best to help the, the company succeed. That would change how everything worked. It carries the idea of using your best use of your time and your talents for your employee instead of people spending half their work day at the water cooler. And I, you know, it, it's so commonplace now that there's jokes about it all the time. That someone gets in and then they take their first break. And then they take a second break and then they finally work for a couple minutes and then they go take a lunch break and then they take another break. And, and out of an eight hour day, they probably get an average of one hour. I saw a statistic. I don't remember where it is, but the regular employee only works one hour at a lot of places. Isn't that horrible? That's called theft. You're stealing time from your employer. You should use your best time and your best resources to help it succeed. But notice as it now brings it down to this. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That as we wrap up the idea of this younger generation, that they are supposed to have the character and the work ethic for the purpose that people say, that person wears Christ. That person acts like a behavior. I was talking to a lapsed Catholic last night, meaning that he grew up Catholic, but he's no longer practicing. And he said, you as a preacher, is it disheartening to you to find so many people rejecting religion? I said, well, the problem isn't the people who reject religion. It's the people professing Christ, not living like Christians. That's caused people to rebel away. And he thought on that, and we had a conversation. He said, you know what? You're right. If Christians would behave like Christians, more people would be attracted. And this is someone who's not saved, just thinking about it logically. The whole problem with our world, the whole problem with the society, the problem with the millennials is not the millennials. It's Christians not behaving like Christians. People are tired of hearing about Christians. They want to meet one. And where are they going to meet one? It's not at church. It's going to be at work. When they finally say, you know what? That person there, that is a Christian. If you could forgive the personal illustration. I, um, I was at the Air Force for a long time. And unusually, they left me on one base for years and years. I was put in Luke Air Force Base at one location for six to seven years. That's very unusual. And during that six and seven years, you know, I, of course, I became an assistant to the pastor and I worked. But you know, it took five years before I first saw the first employee got saved, my co-worker get saved. 
And then all of a sudden, they just started dropping like dominoes and just save, 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 save. And it was wonderful. But you know what finally broke it? They said, you behave like a Christian. We watched you live like a Christian. God was real to you. And we wanted to know more about your God because of how you live. They, they, they wanted to see me in my good days, in my bad days. How did I do my job? Was I slacking off like everyone else? Did I use the same language? Did I participate in the jokes? Again, if you could forgive the personal illustration. I, um, I worked for the University of Tennessee Hospital twice. The first time I worked, I was having bad back problems uh, and I finally fell in a parking lot and they said, all right, well, you can't work till you get a doctor's notice. And so I was off work for three months, still technically employed, just not getting hours. Finally, I said, I don't think I'm going to get better. I'm going to have to kind of step away. So they didn't fire me. I, I kind of quit so that way they could fill the position again. Well, a little bit later, I tried to restore my back and the boss came to me, found me. And he said, I need to hire you back. I know that your back can't handle the workload, but I need you back. He said, an amazing thing that when you work there, the people stop cussing. They stop using the Lord's name in vain. They stop lying. They stop talking about cheating on their husbands and wives. And he said, I don't care if you work there or not. I just need your presence there. Because your presence affected how we worked. That should be the testimony of a Christian with a pattern of good works is that with consistency, it changes people because they say that person's real. Their God is real. How are we going to impact a generation that is going running away from God? By us living like a Christian. Having the character of a Christian and a work ethic of a Christian. That's what's going to reach people to say our God is real and he's real to us on Monday is just as real as he is us on Sunday. We have to have the consistent lives. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.